The best tech conference of the year is coming to Las Vegas, November 28th through December 2nd, and MongoDB will be there. Check us out at booth 1611 for prizes, swag, and to learn all about the Atlas Developer Data Platform. Can't make it to the show but still want to enjoy the fun? Check out the MongoDB live stream for live interviews and discussions of all the exciting announcements from the show. Visit mongodb.com slash reinvent for more information. Welcome to the podcast. In this episode, Nick and I are talking with Mark Smith. Mark is a developer advocate here at MongoDB. He's written an article entitled, Everything You Know About MongoDB Is Wrong, addressing some of the misconceptions about MongoDB out there. So in this episode, we get a little bit deep about some of these misconceptions, and we hope to clear those up. Mark is so knowledgeable about so many aspects of software development. He's a pleasure to work with, and I know Nick and I had a great time talking with him. I hope you enjoy this episode. You're listening to the MongoDB Podcast. MongoDB Podcast. Exploring the world of software development, data, and all things MongoDB. And now your hosts, Michael Lynn and Nick Raboy. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Nick. It's great to great to kick off another episode. Yeah, it is. And we've actually got a, a pretty awesome episode with Mark Smith today. Uh, telling us all the myths and truths about MongoDB. Mark, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. So Mark, tell me a little bit about yourself. Maybe help the uh, the listeners understand who you are and what you've done and, and uh, what brought you to MongoDB. Okay. Um, well, these days I'm a senior developer advocate for MongoDB, as you know. Um, I've been doing advocacy for uh, about four or five years now. But before that, because I'm old, I've been a software developer for about 20 years, working in a whole bunch of different disciplines. Um, and I've worked in I've worked from in everything from kind of travel sites to uh, medical imaging, um, doing uh, Alzheimer's diagnosis on brain scans, um, to kind of uh, websites storing um, shopfront data for businesses around um, major cities in the UK. Uh, so you can tell when a shop well what a shop sells when it's open, um, and various uh, along with reviews and things like that. Um, and I've always found like data, any of those things that I've built with data has been more interesting than the ones that, that, you know, don't work with data. So I've always been kind of drawn to, um, building software that works with large amounts of data rather than just kind of, um, bits of software that just run on a machine and, uh, maybe allow you to play a game or, um, show some graphics and things like that. What kind of languages have you worked in? So I started out doing Java in the mid to late nineties. Um, and worked with that for quite a while. But then around 2000, I was looking for a language that would just be easier to write um, kind of data translation code. So we were doing a lot of what nowadays is called ETL. Um, so it's essentially scripting, kind of moving data from one place to another and, and changing the, the form of it, changing the schema of it, um, linking it into other data, and just Java code it's very repetitive and kind of verbose, and it was just kind of slowing us down working with that whole uh, ecosystem for scripts that sometimes were only run once or twice or once a month or something like that. So they didn't need to be really fast. And so um, at the time, I, I discovered Python, but it didn't have enough libraries around it. And so I ended up doing all this stuff in Perl. I ended up doing really quite a lot of Perl around um, the early 2000s. 
But every company I worked for for the next few years, I tried to get them to adopt Python in some form or another. And for a good decade or so, the answer was no. And then at some point, I started to see jobs appearing for Python developers. And it was like, I could get a job doing Python development, which was something that I just did in my free time. And so um, I adopted that kind of, I think, to be honest, it's, it's about 12 years ago now, I switched full time to Python development. And at the time, everybody said, that's that new language, isn't it? Isn't that a bit of a risk? Despite the fact that Python actually, I think, is technically older than Java. I think it was released earlier than Java was, but it just nobody adopted it. There was just a really slow adoption curve. And then now everybody does Python. <laughs> it's like the best career move that I ever made. So these days, I, I consider myself a Python specialist, but I'm also dabbling in Rust in a similar kind of way to the way I used to dabble in Python and kind of thinking, you know, it'd be nice if I got some more opportunities to write Rust code. I always love to ask this of folks that work in multiple languages. Um, what are you thinking when you're thinking about solving a problem? What, do you, what language do you think in? It's mainly Python. I'll admit, like Python is is still very much my go-to language. It's very kind of I I understand how Python works at a very sort of intrinsic level, so I find modeling code in Python very easily. And so uh, my my approach to Rust, which is not necessarily ideal, is that I essentially try to write something Pythonic in Rust, and then fix it so that it works in Rust, and then try to fix it again, to make it more elegant in the same way as I might write, so similar to the way I might write something in Rust. Uh, Rust probably syntactically owes more to Ruby than, than Python, so actually that doesn't always work. It's a slightly different sort of model. But so you've managed to scrub the Perl from your brain? I think I, I started as a Perl developer, and, and uh, it took me a long time to stop thinking in Perl. Yeah, well, it took me a long time to stop thinking in Java. I spent the first few years of my Python development essentially writing Java code in Python, which is a really terrible thing to do. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the Perl went immediately. I mean, it was always a bit like that when I was writing it, I suppose. It's, it's a large and kind of amorphous language. I loved it, by the way. I mean, it's a great language, but you just don't ever want to have to read somebody else's Perl code or your Perl code after a week, a week after you've written it. Yeah, that just, I had to write some, I had to write about three lines of Perl code to run a regular expression for a lightning talk that I gave, like a comedy lightning talk that I gave about five years ago. And it took me about an hour to write three lines of Perl code. So I really can't keep that on my CV as a sort of functioning language that I have. Did anyone know what you were talking about during that presentation? I, I, the modern they generation, I don't think, has ever seen Perl. I, got, I, I, um, I, I walked them through what the Perl code was doing, um, and I got booed. So they definitely understood what I was talking about. <laughs> I think so how did you transition to working with MongoDB? It sounds like you were working with data quite a bit. Um, at what point did you start working with MongoDB? So I had actually done, I'd been contracting for ST Microelectronics, which is like the world's largest electronics manufacturer. And I had been training a lot of their staff in Python and working with some of their um, video camera app, sta app stacks. So it was, um, something people don't know about Edinburgh is that the um, camera sensor you use on your phone was invented at the University of Edinburgh. Um, no, that spun out as a commercial offshoot of the university, which was then bought by ST Microelectronics. So we have a whole load of technology here around uh, camera hardware. And um, so I actually spent two years working with Python, absolutely loving it, learning a whole load of stuff about hardware that is just unbelievable, the stuff that they're doing at that scale, but not working with any data. And as I said, like, I, I really do like working with data. 
And so after two years, it was becoming a little bit sort of tiring working with the sort of pure code stack. And um, so I handed in my notice. I just kind of said that at the end of the month, I'm going to be moving on to something else. And the, but the truth was, I wasn't. I was because I'd been, I was contracting and I wanted to build up my own business. I was actually planning to take three months off um, and build some software to solve a problem and then essentially see if I could build a business off the back of that. Well, one day after I, I told them that I was leaving, I got a phone call from an agent that I'd never heard of before. Um, and he was like, there's this travel company in Edinburgh. It's doing really well. Um, they've got this really interesting stack of NoSQL database and a search engine um, product. And like, they're, they're building a whole new product on this to sell skiing holidays. And uh, there's a company called Skyscanner, um, which ended up being a unicorn. It's like one of Scotland's six ever unicorns. Um, and so I just, instead of taking my three months off, I was like, okay, sign me up for the interview. It's like, I'm never going to get to work with this stack of technologies again. <laughs> so I, um, I really took the interview, got the job and um, ended up working there for a few years. Uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't a MongoDB stack, but it was my first NoSQL stack. And it was kind of like, oh, this is a different way of thinking where you pick a database for its strengths rather than just like picking up the relational database that you know best. Well, I mean, the, the experience is amazing. You've got a ton of experience and you've worked with NoSQL, but when did you actually start to, to work with MongoDB? Do you remember the version number? Um, so it was pretty recent. Um, I started working with MongoDB just over a year ago. So the, oh, the wow. irony of, the, of me working at MongoDB is actually that my wife has been working with MongoDB for a few years now every day. So she's an absolute expert in everything. MongoDB. Um, and so when I started to talk to people within the uh, developer relations team at MongoDB about a job there, she sat me down and taught me all the stuff that I needed to know, starting with aggregation pipelines um, and moving on from there. So it was, it was a real eye-opener because, what, I mean, this kind of leads into the post that I wrote recently, um, everything you know about MongoDB is wrong, in that I, I had a set of perceptions about MongoDB and it was essentially built around the idea it was a sharded CRUD database. You know, you couldn't do particularly complex queries with it or anything like that. And then she shows me aggregation pipelines and how to unwind documents and, and things like that. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is, this is incredible. And um, so that was when it really started to become real to me that I really wanted to work with this, this product. So let's talk about that article. Um, I thought it was fascinating. When I, when I joined MongoDB, um, I was aware of some of the, the memes around it and some of the, the fallacies and, and myths of data loss and security and, and all of these things. But um, So when did you come up with the idea to write this article? During the training. So we have some quite in-depth training, um, technical training about MongoDB when you join the company. And I kept on having all these preconceptions about MongoDB kind of blown away. Um, they were either things that were never really true or things that were just exaggerated at certain points because often you've got a more subtle story to tell about how MongoDB works than just like it loses data or it's insecure. And people don't want to listen to the subtleties of a story or explain how something happened. They just like the headline that these these terrible things um, exist, which they don't in almost every case. And in, in many cases... Um, some of the myths were just features that were missing from the product as it was being developed. And more recently, in the last kind of five or six years, these features have been added, making kind of MongoDB a proper general purpose database the way we always wanted it to be. I think the, the article leads with this, and it's probably one of the most famous memes around MongoDB 
it's around MongoDB's web scale. Um, I just love that, uh, the cartoon. Um, and yeah. if folks have not seen it, you're going to want to check this article out uh, because it, it does reference that. So definitely check that out. But tell me a little it's bit a about- dog. Is it a dog? I, I think it's a cat. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've had people say it's a pig. I've, um, you know, it's, it's a kind of, I don't know, uh, early 3D sort of blob animal, isn't it? That, do you want me to describe the video? Or, yeah, um, that'd be good for yes. the folks that may have not seen it. So, I mean, at a Talking high level. The Animal Crossing type stuff? Uh, it does look a bit Animal Crossing. Now I think about it, it's like early yeah. Animal Crossing or something. Um, yep. But yeah, there's these two animals, and we're not quite sure what they are. Let's call them dogs, um, having an argument. Now, the, this video was put together using this kind of this software where you write the transcript of the dialogue you want the, the characters to have, and then it, it reads it out using computerized voices for the characters. And anyway, whoever, it, I forgot his name, the, the guy who put this together. Um, wrote this dialogue with these two dogs where one's a real fanboy of MongoDB and thinks it's fantastic and it solves all scaling problems instantly with no limitations. Um, and the other dog is attempting to kind of um, bring some balance and perspective to the first dog, which which like is very resistant to that. And eventually there's just lots of swearing and the, the second dog's very frustrated. And that's, that's basically the way this story goes. <laughs> but I love the way it leaves it. It's, you know, one of them is just dead set on using MongoDB, regardless of the fact that, you know, he's, he's pretty sure it loses data. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's certainly been told. Um, I've been told that the, the person who put this together actually likes MongoDB and uses it for work, um, but was frustrated by these fanboys who, you know, were essentially misusing MongoDB for either things at the time that it wasn't suited for. I mean, this video is 10 years old, so it's yeah. a very different product. Uh, you know, MongoDB's storage engine has been completely rewritten. It's got completely different characteristics about the way that it operates these days and like, a whole load of new features that it didn't have back then. So it doesn't have the limitations that it used to have. So that's myth number one. And, you know, when I joined MongoDB, I was quite shocked at the the reception of that meme inside MongoDB. You know, everyone loved it. It was, yep. you know, we loved it. We just embraced Stickers and t-shirts. Yes, all over the place. It was great. Uh, so that's myth number one. Anything else you want to add on, on myth number one? Uh, n no, I don't think so. Because I would have said, like, I really like the dog character. <laughs> so the only thing <laughs> I want to say is I haven't got a t-shirt that says MongoDB is web scale on it, and I want one. So if you know where I can get one of those internally, that would be good. <laughs> we have to get you one for sure. So the next myth uh, that that people kind of bring up is around uh, the type of storage that that you do in, in MongoDB, and people think that it's a JSON database, right? Um, yeah. What do we What do we know about that? that myth? Uh, I mean, the very simple answer is MongoDB isn't a JSON database. It's a BSON database. Um, which I spell out pretty clearly. But I mean, it's understandable where this myth comes from because we at MongoDB have used JSON as a shorthand for structured documents. You know, we kind of say, if you want to store JSON database data, MongoDB is the database to do that. Um, whereas in fact, like storing JSON as raw JSON in, in a database would, would be a silly thing to do. It's an inefficient way to store, say, binary data or numeric data and things like that. It's, it's a good transmission format because it's nice and easy to pass um, uh, with, with very little memory overhead and things like that. But it's like, essentially, BSON is it's kind of analogous to JSON, but it has some extra data types. It's much more efficient um, for transmission. It's efficient to search it and traverse the data. 
And it's just got some kind of different characteristics. Um, and some of them are limitations, right? The BSON database has a, a limit uh, in size to 64 megabytes. So um, it's, yeah. It's, so when, it, I, you, when I do a query, am I looking at JSON or am I looking at BSON? Um, so you might be looking at JSON. You might have written some JSON, but it will be trans translated into BSON before it's sent to MongoDB. So MongoDB uses BSON as part of the um, network protocol. That's the way that data is sent backwards and forwards to the server. Um, it's used to store the data. You write queries in essentially, uh, they become BSON. So you should think in BSON when you're writing um, queries. And obviously the documents are returned to you as BSON. Yeah, but at the end of the day, JSON has some limitations that make it inefficient for, for databases. Like you said, you cannot store a date, a true date object in JSON. Yeah. Right? And, and what happens in BSON is, um, I may be dramatically simplifying this, but this is, this is how I've, I've thought of it. When we, we store the data on disk, we take some extra bytes on the end of each of the fields. Right? JSON is just key value pairs. Keys are always string. The values are of different types. At the end of each field value, we, we take a couple of extra bytes to store the data type. And that way, the driver knows what the data object is, what the type of the object is, right? Um, we've got native date time types, um, date, native binary types, um, and a whole bunch of numeric types for storing floating point data accurately, for example. That's another weakness of JSON. It's just, just, just not really designed for storing um, you know, numeric data accurately. So let's jump right into the, the next myth then uh, that, that you've outlined. And we can maybe come up with some other myths that, uh, towards the end of the podcast as well. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're going to put you on the spot. But um, I hear this all the time when I'm, when I'm out at events, when I'm uh, doing Twitch streams, when I'm doing um, just anything that's public facing. Uh, well, I need transactions, right? I need transactions for my data. That's why I can't use MongoDB. So I can't use MongoDB. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, this this is kind of a, I think, a two-stage answer. It, uh, it's, it's one of those answers that kind of refers back to what I said a little while ago about um, the answers being more complex than, than the shorthand. So the, the short, short answer is MongoDB has transactions. MongoDB has supported um, transactions on explicit transactions on replica sets since 4.0 and on sharded clusters since 4.2. Um, so for the last four years or so, um, MongoDB has been supporting transactions across collections and across documents. But the, again, the answer is like kind of, it's got this other layer. So even before transactions were added to MongoDB, um, updates to documents were always atomic. So when you make an update to two different parts of a document with a single update command, that is one single atomic operation. It will either succeed or fail. Um, and so you can't end up with a document in an inconsistent state, providing you're making those updates as a kind of a grouped update command. Um, and so providing you're modeling your data, or providing you can model your data so that when you're updating different parts of your data set, if you can model that within a single document, then you've essentially got transactions. Um, but you also have those scaling advantages of working with MongoDB, kind of a, you know, a, a, a native clustered database from the beginning. Uh, so and, and the other thing to mention is that actually you probably don't need transactions. You, mm, maybe Wait probably a minute. Wrong Wait one. a minute. I know that I have to, <laughs> I, when I model my data, I put my data in separate tables. So and when you, the, the example that people use always is moving money between accounts in a bank, right? But the truth is that isn't the way that banks work. They don't 
use a transaction to subtract money from one account and add it to another. They they use some form of event sourcing, this model where you model the transactions that are happening rather than um, modeling the state of the data at any point in time. And then you can take that the aggregation of those operations to um, to build the state at any moment in time. Okay, so that covers transactions. And whenever you talk about transactions, I always hear um, the ACID question. And ACID is, well, I guess it's a component of transactions, but does MongoDB support ACID? Oh, absolutely. MongoDB is a yeah. fully ACID compliant database. It's atomic, atomic, consistent, isolated, and durable, which I, I guess we'll probably be talking about further on in this uh, conversation. So then let's move on to the next myth which is about relationships. Does MongoDB support relational data structures? Oh, see, before you were explicit about that, what that question meant, I was about to make a joke about Valentine's Day coming up. But <laughs> <laughs> um, So yes, yes, it does. Uh, uh, this, this is a nice short answer. It's, um, the, I mentioned aggregation pipelines before, super powerful pe- feature of MongoDB. It's like, sadly, really underused. I think a lot, there's a lot of people using MongoDB that, that don't even know aggregation pipelines exist or possibly know they exist but don't know what they do or what they're for and maybe they haven't gone and learned about them. But um, So tell me about how the aggregation framework applies to relational data. Um, so the aggregation framework can do a lot of things. I mean, ultimately, it's a query language for uh, that moves your data through a pipeline of operations where each operation conduct, it, it does something to the data as it's going through the pipeline. And when it comes to the end of your, your series of operations that you have in your pipeline, you get the documents that come out at the end. So you can calculate some, stu- some values um, from, um, say, grouping together some documents on a key. Um, do some calculations on the values for those each of those groups, and then you get kind of a group document come out the bottom. But one of the commands in there, as well as group, is a command called lookup, which allows you to look up related data, essentially do a left outer join in relational database terms uh, against another collection, or even against the same collection if you're doing some kind of um, uh, bare ear uh, relational model uh, within your collection. Um, but even though it does... It, this kind of comes back to something I said when we were talking about transactions. So ideally, if you're if you're t- going to take full advantage of MongoDB's benefits, so that you should be trying to model your data. So to take advantage of like, the the rich hierarchical structure that you can that you can store in a single document, as opposed to a row in a relational database table, um, to store your data together if you can. In which case, you don't need to do the lookups because you're you're essentially storing your aggregated data. Uh, within a single document. I think the problem that, that occurs there in the mind of a, a person coming from a relational background or a, a tabular background, I'll say, is that it, it, by its very nature, what you said, you're making use of um, the document model and storing the data adjacent to other data that you will be reading. We have this mantra when I was running the, you know, doing technical training. We say that data that will be read together in MongoDB should be stored together. And that almost always means that you're going to duplicate data. And that becomes an issue because that's one of the rules against. That's a COD rule. Like you should limit the duplication of data wherever possible. Yes. But um, yeah, so I, I mean, people listening in or the, the tabular relational developers will be like, well, you can't 
you know, you shouldn't duplicate <laughs> the data. Doesn't isn't that inefficient? How do you how do you answer that? Uh, disk space is cheap. Sorry, it's a bit glib as an answer, but it's, I mean that's the 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 truth about the modern world, isn't it? It's like it, you you can afford to duplicate data in many cases, um, and the, I've got the other side of that um, as well as um, storage space is that if you wanted to change, say. Um, one of the values that is now duplicated throughout your collection, you've now got to go through a whole bunch of documents to make that change. And I think the the answer to that is, is that a huge burden? And it, I mean, it's, it's a good, sorry, that was a question rather than an answer, but it's, <laughs> um, uh, you, everything is a trade-off, right? So duplicating the data is a trade-off. Um, you get scalability benefits there. Um, you get kind of atomicity benefits as well, where you can you can update one and not the rest. Um, you can choose to go and clean up the value in your collection over time, and potentially while that operation is going on, um, people may see inconsistent views of the data. And if that's a problem, that that's a problem, and you may need to use a lookup instead. Um, if it isn't a problem, and I think in many cases it isn't. I mean, MongoDB as a sort of database for backing, say, websites, um, is very much about storing kind of views of data for individual users. So it's kind of atomic around the user that's seeing it or the product it applies to or, you know, the unit that you're looking at. And so updating a key on one product that that may may take a few seconds to be updated for another product, it's, it's not necessarily a huge problem, I think, in, in the real world. I think that makes sense. So the next myth is around sharding. So when people think uh, MongoDB or maybe even NoSQL databases in general, they think, oh, I'm working with a distributed database. I need to figure out how to shard my data across multiple nodes in a cluster. Uh, what's the reality behind that? Is it true? Yes and no. Uh, I, um, I put this in because when I first started at MongoDB, I, I, this wasn't a myth that I necessarily fell for originally. Um, it was just that I had a few people coming to me and immediately talking about sharding. It's like, oh, I hear, you know, I'm, you're working at MongoDB, are you? It's, uh, I've, uh, I've always been quite impressed with it. It's like, you know, having sharding built in is a really good thing. But I didn't encounter sharding that much early on, and I personally have no use for it. It's like you can, you can store massive amounts of data on a single machine like you would in a single node in a replica set, right? So I, I don't have a purpose for sharding. You don't need to shard it until um, your data doesn't fit on a single machine anymore. There are some ways to optimize um, data lookup as well by sharding the data and therefore spreading the load across machines. But again, that's, I mean, it's, MongoDB is already built to be so fast for reads that it's, um, yeah, I, it's just not something I expect to encounter at the scale of software that I'm working with. Um, but the story underlying it was more interesting than the actual myth. It's like the fact that earlier versions of MongoDB were tied to one um, core on a server. And that was fine kind of 12 years ago when MongoDB was formed. Um, but as we reached the limit of Moore's law, and so they started making machines faster by adding more cores to them. And suddenly MongoDB being pinned to a single core was a problem for, for executing queries against that data. And so developers would do a thing called micro sharding, where they would run multiple MongoDB instances on a single multi-core machine. They'd run essentially one shard for each core. And that way, because those shards essentially operate independently, um, they, they could get full advantage of the processor power of the machines that they were running. But since the storage engine was rewritten with the Wired Tiger engine um, back 
uh, you might have to remind me, was that five or six years ago? Maybe a little longer. Um, that's a non-locking storage engine. So it's not no longer bound to a single core. There's no real limitations around that. And so there's no need to micro shard anymore. So th this was really put in to say, you don't need to think about sharding upfront. Sharding is a solution to a problem you'll probably have further down the line rather than kind of thinking about modeling your data around it at the beginning. And I wanted to use this as an opportunity to plug an episode that we did prior with, with uh, Jay Runkle. This is, I think, episode number 28, right, Mike? That's right. Um, so he's actually a solutions architect, and the, the topic of the episode was on sizing your MongoDB clusters. And he talked about from experience with customers that, that sharding uh, was not always necessary and very rarely necessary if i recall correctly mike is that what well, i think there's some general general rules of thumb if you're dealing with larger sets of data two gigabytes and and large or two terabytes and larger you generally want to start looking at your sharding options and and previously it was so important previously because there was no real option to change your sharding key uh that's kind of changed in in more recent versions of mongodb but uh, but you still do need to to give some thought about how you're going to partition your data absolutely there's a lot of complexity that comes along with sharding um and so it really shouldn't ever be your first choice for scaling out should it it's um oh, it's right. something something you you, you kind of want to be forced into and at that point you'll be like so happy that it's a built-in feature of mongodb it is a core feature but um i think up until that point i don't think people talk about that enough like it is built in it's it's a native capability and and pretty much from day one uh, the people that wrote the database thought about the fact that they were going to have to s partition this and scale out, right? So it's just native. It's just available. Well, that's what the whole MongoDB is web scale thing means. Right, exactly. All right, so so let's move on to the next myth, which is about security. Mark, tell me a little bit about the, the myth that MongoDB is insecure. Okay, so I'll give you the short answer first and then move into the kind of longer more subtle answer. So the, the first answer to that question is that MongoDB is not insecure. It uses industry standards for over-the-wire encryption, for which it uses TLS um, and um, password exchange. So it uses a, a protocol called uh, Scram Shard 256. Um, and so there's nothing intrinsically different about the way that, that MongoDB handles kind of security from a technical perspective compared to any other database you might use. Um, the longer answer is more complex. And there is has been a history, and, and there kind of still is, are a whole load of unsecured MongoDB instances available on the internet. Um, I've actually seen a demo of somebody um, look up a random Mongo insecure like label tagged as Mongo insecure MongoDB instance on the internet and just connect to it to see what was inside it. Um, and if you, what we discovered was was a, a kind of truth about what happens if you put if you put an unsecured MongoDB instance on the internet, somebody will connect to it. They will encrypt all of your data and they will add a document to all of your collections telling you where to send Bitcoin to have your data decrypted again. <laughs> okay, so I, so I want to ask the question, like, number one, why is this the case? Why are there so many insecure instances? And And then I want to make sure we cover how we've changed to prevent that going forward. Yeah, I think, think that's good. So um, traditionally, MongoDB instances, when they were distributed on various, um, packaged for various different types of Linux, um, when you installed them, they would spin up a service 
um, that had unrestricted access to the database with no authentication enabled. Um, now, this wouldn't be a problem if you're running a firewall on the machine, which uh, everybody should. Everybody should run a firewall on the machine and only open up the ports that they need to. And I mean, that, that is quite often a default with these distributions as well. So they would be running a firewall. But I think when you maybe when you have a less experienced database administrator or web developer who's working in a whole bunch of different areas, they write their application on a different machine. Maybe they write it on the same machine and then move it to an application server and suddenly they can't get to their data anymore. And so they're like, what's stopping me from connecting to my database? Oh, this firewall. So they just open up that port on the firewall um, and suddenly everybody in the world potentially has access to their MongoDB instance without ever adding any authentication. Um, and I think in some respects, it's kind of unfair to blame like, the product for these insecure instances of MongoDB when essentially some kind of sysadmin has decided to make an unsecure instance of MongoDB available on the internet um, rather than either locking it down to a single app server or um, adding authentication um, data to it so that uh, you can only connect with the correct password. Um, what we've done uh, more recently um, I think since 3.6 um, is that MongoDB won't connect to the network without authentication setup. So if you don't set a username and password, you can't connect to it from across the network. Um, there is a flag you can, maybe I shouldn't say this, there's a flag you can provide when you start up the service that you can add. If you, if you um, really, really, really want to be insecure, you can. But I'm not going to tell you what the flag is. It's like, if you really, really, really want to have an insecure version of MongoDB, you totally can, but you have to go and read the documentation first. It's not the default. Um, So I think think that's already making huge differences in the kind of secure by default. It is a sensor. It's always been a sensible option. And I think in this case, it's, uh, it's the right decision. So I feel like um, we should definitely cover the, the, the changes that have also been incorporated as part of Atlas. Like it's, it's virtually impossible to, to, to deploy an insecure instance of MongoDB with Atlas. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, when you're uh, producing a software product that gets kind of packaged up and distributed and people have to upgrade and things like that, it's, like, it's very difficult to make changes to the defaults because a lot of people are running with the defaults, especially if you've chosen sensible defaults from the beginning. And so if they upgrade and then suddenly things don't work for one reason, whether that reason is they're more secure or more durable, like that's a kind of problem unless you really flag it up to people that they're going to get this change when they upgrade with, let's say, a minor package upgrade. Um, but the, the great thing with Atlas was it gave us the opportunity to, um, I guess, learn from our experience and use the right choices up front. So when I said secure by default earlier, it's like Atlas takes that even further. In that when you, when you spin up an Atlas cluster, you can't connect to it from the network. You have to whitelist each IP individually, unless you really want to whitelist all IP addresses, which is, um, again, not advisable. Um, and also it comes with authentication by default. So it's that you can't connect to it without, without an account being set up. So another popular story that people share online, particularly I think Twitter and, and Reddit, is that uh, MongoDB is uh, great if you want to lose your data. But that's probably not true, right? Uh, I would hope not. Um... Yeah, you find you hear these stories, and um, I know a colleague of ours has a, a, a habit of responding to them with, "I work for MongoDB. Please give me more information about this story. File a ticket. You know, we will respond to any reports of data loss, uh, like with a filed ticket, 
with even if you're not a paying customer. It's the most important thing if you're a database company is not to lose data. And we take that more seriously than anyone, as far as I'm aware. So it's like, again, there had to be more of a story to this. And when I started to look into it, I discovered that it, much like security, this is kind of a case of defaults. Um, so the defaults when you install MongoDB on your own machine are not ideal from my perspective. Like the, the, we're working with a clustered database. It acknowledges when it's received data. Um, the default is to acknowledge that it's received data when one machine has received the data in memory. Um, whereas when you're working with a cluster database, what you really want is to um, know that there is basically zero chance of losing the data. That's when you want an acknowledgement that data has been received. Um, and so you should set the what's called the right concern to majority. It starts off as one, which is one node in the cluster. You set it to majority, and then you won't get an acknowledgement that the data has been received until it has not just been received by a majority of machines in the cluster, but also journal to disk. So unless you have a massive parallel catastrophic disk failure on a majority of machines in the cluster, that data is safe on your cluster. So then why not change the default? It's a performance thing. So um, there's a whole bunch of DBAs out there running MongoDB, expecting a certain level of performance, but also, and maybe having decided on the trade-off of like they want faster machines, but if they were to lose a couple of seconds of data, maybe that's not a big deal to them. Um, if they were to upgrade and the defaults are changed to majority, suddenly everything gets slower and they have to find out why and then go and change the settings on the machine. And it may not sound like a huge burden, but there are so many customers of MongoDB who would be affected by this that it's just, like, it's just a very difficult decision to make, I think, on that scale. Again, with Atlas, the default is majority out of the box. So it's like with Atlas, you, you get this. It's just, yeah, by default. You can, you can override it if you want to, but, but we go with um, durability by default. And just to be just to be clear, since uh, majority is not the default uh, outside of Atlas, we're not saying that you're we're guaranteeing that you're going to lose data if if you leave it as the default, right? It, it, we're just saying that it could happen. Absolutely, like in in very rare circumstances, you could lose the data, um, and it's it's really like under heavy write load, and the primary machine goes down, um, potentially some data that that was being buffered in memory you know, um, could be lost. But you yeah. you are talking like a couple of seconds of data or something. All right, so the final myth is that MongoDB is a toy. Tell me a little bit about where this one came from. Um, it was really summing up like, everything else from the rest of the post. I think it's especially probably apparent from just my answers to some of the questions in this conversation is that there's a lot of complexity to MongoDB. There's a lots, of, lots of decisions you need to make like when setting up the database, when, authentic, when setting up authentication, um, how to construct queries, like understanding how data is stored and modeled. Um, it's a, a really powerful general purpose database. And so the more that you can know about it, like, and, and if you don't come in assuming it's going to be, like, it's just going to do everything for you and it doesn't do that much, um, the opposite is true. It's like you have a whole load of control over the way that you use MongoDB and it's useful to know um, how to use that control, how to use that power um, fully for the, the use cases that you have. Well, this has been a great episode. I'm so glad you came on and uh, cleared up some of these myths. If someone wants to learn more and maybe even become a MongoDB expert, what advice do you have for them? There are so many resources out there. I mean, I'd start off with the MongoDB community. Um, we set it up last year. The um, 
MongoDB forums, the, the community forums, is just a great place to ask questions or po just post interesting things that you're doing with MongoDB. Um, and people will come back with kind of encouragement or support or help uh, around the issues. And it's not just a place where other MongoDB users hang out. It's also the place where the developers of MongoDB hang out. So if you really want kind of knowledge from from the people who really understand the insides of, of MongoDB, that's a great place to go. But on top of that, like if you want to take a more kind of um, directed approach to learning how to use MongoDB, there's MongoDB University, a whole load of it's, uh, free online courses um, for learning MongoDB in real depth. Like there's some uh, kind of early courses that cover it more broadly, and then you can dive into how indexes work and the different features of MongoDB indexes and other different areas that are kind of uh, subsets of that. Fantastic. So before we leave the, the community comment, I want to make sure we, we drop the address. How do people get to the community? Oh, so that's community.mongodb.com. Yeah, uh, awesome. And then if university is just simply university.mongodb.com. I'm glad you had that off because honestly, I... <laughs> <laughs> we try and make it simple. Yeah. Um, All right. Uh, Nick, anything else to add before we wrap? If, if people wanted to engage with you outside of the community, are you on, say, Twitter or another social media platform, Mark? Yeah, so um, tweeting or DMing me on Twitter is probably the best way. My account is judy2k, uh, J-U-D-Y-2-K. Uh, difficult to pronounce, but easy to type. Um, it's uh, th there's some reasons behind that, but they're not as funny as you might imagine. So I don't tell anybody what they are. It's just <laughs> some people find very frustrating. <laughs> great, awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much. It's been a great uh, great time talking with you. No problem at all. It's been great chatting. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe. Have a question or a suggestion for the show? Visit us in the MongoDB community forums at community.mongodb.com. The best tech conference of the year is coming to Las Vegas, November 28th through December 2nd, and MongoDB will be there. Check us out at booth 1611 for prizes, swag, and to learn all about the Atlas Developer Data Platform. Can't make it to the show but still want to enjoy the fun? Check out the MongoDB live stream for live interviews and discussions of all the exciting announcements from the show. Visit mongodb.com reinvent for more information.